Does employability enhance your chances of acceptance to top MBA programs? What is employability? What are talent acquisition people looking for when they're seeking to hire? Let's find out in this interview with Diana Economy, former head of admissions at Michigan Ross and currently senior talent acquisition manager at Vail Resorts. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Acceptance founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Welcome to the 501st episode of Mission Straight Talk. Thanks for listening. I hope you tuned in to our very special number 500 last week. If not, you can you can still catch it. Don't worry, it's still online. Now, you've seen the stats that most people have a great return on their MBA investment. But what about you? Are you going to see that kind of return? And how much will it be? How much can you anticipate? We've created a tool that will help you assess whether the MBA is likely to be a good investment for you. Just go to accept.com slash MBA ROI calc again, MBA, ROI, C-A-L-C, complete the brief questionnaire, and you'll not only get an assessment, but the opportunity to calculate different scenarios. And it's all free. Again, you can use the calculator at accept.com slash MBA, ROI, calc, and obtain that complimentary assessment. It gives me great pleasure to have back on Admission Straight Talk, Diana Economy, Senior Talent Acquisition Manager, Programs International for Vail Resorts, and formerly the director of full-time MBA admissions at Michigan Ross. After graduating with a BA in organization studies from the University of Michigan, Diana worked in talent management for companies like Kearney and Kirkland and Ellis. She returned to Ross and earned her MBA in 2010, and then again worked for Kirkland and Ellis and BCG before returning to Ross as associate director of admissions. She was the director of admissions for the Michigan Ross full-time MBA program, from 2017 until just this past July, when Diana joined Vail Resort. And she's also a returning guest to Admission Straight Talk. So Diana, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. It's always a pleasure to speak to you and have you on the show. Always great to be here. Good to see you, Linda. Okay, great. And I'm going to ask again the question I, I asked before we got on, and that is, how's the skiing? Oh my gosh, Linda, I have never thought so much about snow, right? <laughs> you know, and so it's it's going well though so far. It's always kind of fun to hear as the resorts are beginning to get the snow and opening and for us in the world work that we do with talent acquisition too, it's like, you know, a lot of folks are starting over the course of the next month. So it's a really exciting time in the industry. That's great. All right. Now you're in talent acquisition. You're in talent acquisition before you got your MBA. You're in talent acquisition after you got your MBA. And in essence, even at Ross, you were in talent acquisition. You were recruiting, evaluating, and admitting talent. What is the common thread between recruiting MBA students and recruiting talent for Vail, Vail Resorts? Yeah, it's it's really interesting given the the cyclical nature of the admission cycle and of course the cyclical nature of, you know, the ski season of, you know, a lot of our resorts are open through the summer as well, but no question that we're we're hitting the Super Bowl time frame of of uh, the operations and so as I think about kind of what I learned from my time in admissions as well as working in talent acquisition and the kinds of things you know that we look for, you know, in our employees I really find that people that have 
a good sense of kind of who they are and how they can contribute and are very natural in doing so. I think that translates both to admissions committees and Linda, as well as to our guests. So if any of you have been to ski resorts or resorts in general, right, and you think about the people that you interact with, whether it's somebody who's running the lift or doing these other things, they're very engaging. They're very natural in doing that. Of course, an MBA is doing very different type of work and you know different skill set required to get into the MBA program. But there's something to be said about those that thrive in an MBA program and their ability to build those connections, that network, the ability to impact and influence those around you that I think I see is very fluid between both the MBA admissions and recruiting that I did, as well as what we look for in great talent at Vail Resorts. I, I find your um, focus on contribution very interesting, especially when you talk about networking, because networking has such a a connotation of uh, what's in it for me. You're right. And I think, you know, when we're, when we're reading applications and admissions, like one of the things you're thinking about is who's this person going to be when they're sitting in the classroom? What kind of contribution are they going to make there? Who's this person when they're on a team of people where there's no leader on the team and everybody has to work together to figure out how to get to the output for the class assignment or whatever you're working on. And also Who's this person at 10 o'clock at night, right? MBA programs mm -hmm. are not like a nine to five job where you go home and you're, you know, somebody else. It's very fluid. There's a lot of social experiences, academic experiences, career, cultural experiences. And I think, uh, you know, moving in and out of those experiences and being authentic and natural to who you are, and as well as open-minded to learn from those around you, I think is super important. That's great. Now let's focus on your admissions background for a minute. I think one of the keys to a successful application is applying to the right schools. So what are the right schools? Obviously they're different. There are many different schools because there are many different needs and there are different schools for the right schools for different people. How do you suggest people choose where to apply and if accepted, where to attend among multiple acceptances? Yeah, this is an interesting question, Linda. Um, in, in, in light of a question that I know you and I had been talking about online about law schools, not using rankings anymore, because I think right. a, a, a common answer here might be a lot of people look to the rankings first to figure out where to apply. And something I've always said, rankings or otherwise, is, you know, it obviously needs to go much deeper than that. And one of the things that I think COVID brought forward for us, for candidates, which was great, is there are so many ways to engage with a school now, right? It used right. to be for an admissions officer to come to your country or come to your location and they're only going to come once. And this was the one time you had to interact with the school. And maybe there were a few virtual events, even pre-COVID as schools were starting to put out more content virtually, but you were really relying on a website, maybe one visit from an admissions officer or student ambassadors. And so now I think, with so many virtual office hours and engagement opportunities and things, you can engage, you know, virtually, but there's also so much on-demand content and videos and things that are really prescriptive about what that experience is going to be about. You know, I know at Michigan Ross, we had over 300 student ambassadors, 300, right? And you could filter by their background, their interests, like where they're from. And I always told people, if if at a minimum you just read the student ambassador bios on our site or any other, you're going to get a really good idea for who's in that program and the people that you're going to be learning with and around. 
in addition to, of course, the website and the students are going to share the programmatic, the entrepreneurship center and the classes and things like that. But to hear firsthand about that directly from the people that are a part of that community, I think is invaluable and, and certainly goes well beyond, you know, well beyond the rankings. You'll find the school oh, gosh, if you're listening, yeah. right, for the right things. And I would tell you, as you're taking notes, like if you created a spreadsheet that's here's the things that are important to me, you have to write down who you talk to and sort of how you felt after, not just what you heard from them, but sort of, did you enjoy that conversation? Would you want to speak to somebody else at that school? Because mm -hmm. I think a lot of times, if you talk to the one person at any given school that's very much like you, you're probably going to hear what you would expect to hear. But it's in that like second or third or fourth conversation with somebody that might have slightly different you know, interests. Are you hearing some similar themes with the way that the students react to the program? I think it's in those, in that voice that you're hearing and in that experience that they're articulating that you start to understand your own fit. That's true. That's great. And obviously you're, you can go, it's, it's so easy now to go so much beyond the website. There's no excuse. You can reach out. You, you said that Michigan Ross, for example, has 300 student ambassadors. That's probably 25% of the students. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So not only that you can see their bios, you can talk to them. Like we yeah. are talking, we're not in the same place. Right. You can, you can go so much beyond that without travel that, um, yeah, the, the rankings are, I think, in trouble. But, you know, I, I also have to say, I'm not defending the rankings here, but I've always viewed them as stores of data. Yeah, right. Certainly. And, and in that sense, they were they they served a function, they were valuable, right? As right. rankings, I think they're they were named that for, for sales purposes, for marketing purposes, and they worked in that sense, but they were terribly misnamed. Very misnamed. They started at a time when people had much, much more limited access to data oh, yeah. and availability of information. And uh, Linda, you're right. The number of students I find that don't spend time really thinking about what the rankings measuring against their own value set. Like if you take a look at the U.S. News and the U.S. News is right, 25% admissions data. Well, what does that really mean? It means GMAT, GPA, and a little bit on selectivity. How many people you're selecting out of the number that mm -hmm. have applied? Mm -hmm. That's it, right? Otherwise, it's what do other deans think about your school? What do recruiters think of your students? Or what are the recruiting outcomes? Not are you satisfied with that job, but what job did you get? Did you get it in a timely manner? And how much money are you making as a result? Right. If you care about the diversity of people in the classroom around you, that ranking doesn't really measure that, right? Maybe the recruiter, right. like how recruiters are responding to the students and things a little bit. But there's just, there's so many pieces that I know people prioritize, location, other things, right? Right. Just are not part of that. So to your point, it is a good data set for a portion of, of Absolutely. the part of the selection criteria. Right. And it certainly doesn't, it, it cannot reflect what's important to every individual applicant. There's just no way, no ranking can do that. And they really have to set up their own. Okay. So let's go, let's keep your admissions hat on for a little bit longer. Okay. What's the most common mistake that you think applicants make in the process? You know, I, I because applicants have so much access to information, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think there's a right answer for this school's essay questions, and I'm just going to Google it. What is the right answer to school <laughs> A's uh, essay questions, right? And they're reading and they're using this external perspective to help inform their story. Now, it's one thing to like, 
use this perspective to guide generally around themes and things like that. But if if you do that absent your own personal self-reflection, the essays come across very generically, right? It comes across as I'm writing what I think they want to hear versus I'm writing what I'm truly passionate about, who I am and what I'm interested in. You know, and I would say whether an essay question asks you this or not, and, and probably most do not, I would answer the question for yourself. I am passionate about dot, 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 right? I am passionate about because I don't think we give ourselves enough opportunity to really have that exploration. What makes my heart race and my, you know, me so excited to want to do it? What does that look like for me? Um, and I think honing in on the things that make you, you, the things that you're passionate about. One, it comes across if you're, you have some clarity around that for yourself in your essays, sure. but two, there's more similarity than there is difference in post MBA jobs, right? There's a reason that like a variety of industries recruit from a similar, you know, same program, same type of program. And I think if you understand what you're driven by, you know, that's going to that, that's gonna still be there once you get your MBA. You're just going to get this toolkit around you that's going to allow you to direct those interests and passions in a way that's going to be most beneficial to you and to the company and such. But I think people are surprised to realize that what the tech industry is looking for, what the consulting industry is looking for, what they're looking for in brand management is more similar than different. And that last 20 to 30% that makes those roles different can be a material difference for you as you are self-aware of what, you know, how you want to apply this skill set in the kind of environment or uh, roles that might might benefit from that. Right. Great. Thank you. Now, you have an MBA. You were in MBA admissions recruiting, obviously in talent acquisition, and you are again in talent acquisition. How do you recommend students maximize their MBA experience and investment with employability in mind? Obviously, they can have a great time. Okay, they, they'll figure that out. They don't need yours or my advice for that. But in terms of, of the, the job progression, the professional progression, and uh, again, employability. Now, you mentioned, obviously, the ability to contribute, but a little more yep. on that. Linda, every job that I've had post-MBA, I have gotten because of my network and largely because of my MBA network. And so I at Vail Resorts am working for two alums whom I love, who have done very well at Vail and who have painted, uh, you know, this picture of what could be there, right? And so... Mm -hmm. It's not just the relationship to sort of get in the door and, 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 you know, maybe get your resume looked at or, you know, otherwise, but it was their kind of confidence or, or, you know, the way that they were articulating what the company has meant to them, how they have grown personally, professionally, and what the opportunities look like going forward. You know, it helps that I had that conversation with somebody that knows me as well, right? So it wasn't just the network that opened the door. It was the further conversations that we had that allowed me to better understand my fit with the company and what that could look like going forward. So the network, and that's why I say when you talk to student ambassadors or when you talk to people after you get admitted or alumni or otherwise, you are really investing in this network for life. And not all the networks are created equal. There's a, a good bit of similarity between the top MBA programs and their networks, but there's some differences too. And I think that's up to candidates to explore through this set of conversations or experiences that you can have through the admissions process. It sounds to me like you not only had a, a network, you, you had relationships. You got it. That's, that's an important distinction. I'm glad you said that, right? Because you're right. People think of networking as... This yep. like self-serving, self-serving, you know, self yeah. a lot of people, a lot of numbers. Right. 
hopefully but relationships are different. You. Yeah, nobody's going to remember you if you're just a number, right? So they're not going to pick up the phone quite as easily as they would if they had a real connection with you. So all right. Now, I saw in uh, Poets and Quants this week, John Byrne published an article that argues the decline in MBA applications over the last couple of years is not a cyclical downturn due to the tight job market, but really a reset due to the increasing cost of the MBA, uh, the availability of alternatives to the full-time MBA. And let's face it, many schools experienced, not Ross, a double-digit percentage decline in application volume, and some actually shrank their MBA classes. What's your take? Yeah, it's a good question. And I will say, you know, during COVID, it was just such a weird time frame for schools, a fluctuation in apps. I think candidates were trying to figure out their stability and what was happening next. And as we see these tech layoffs now, I think there's a new wave of what's next. And, you know, what I will say is I'm hopeful. I think it's a boost in the need for kind of innovation in the MBA program. So I don't think it's a move away from the MBA program. I'm hoping it's a bit of a call to action for schools to continue to innovate and grow and build with the market and to get candidates what they need. And I think in this new environment where candidates are expecting and craving more flexibility and more, you know, specialization and customization to the needs that they have, the schools are largely well-prepared, especially with the academic customizations and things that you can do through an MBA program. But I think the next question for MBA programs is going to be, especially for a two-year residential program, does it need to be two full years? So to what, to how many months are needed with your cohort to be able to build the relationships that you need to sustain into your career, right? And so I, I will say after two years, you have very, very deep relationships. My question now as the world has evolved is people want to get back to the job market a little bit sooner. They want to be able to make money, right? So it's two years away typically from, from making some kind of money. Is there a hybrid experience that still allows you to engage with your cohort at some point, maybe it's just the final semester or, you know, some period of your second year that gives candidates that flexibility to be able to get the cohort experience, get the education that they need, but also start to try out these skills maybe a little sooner so that they can continue to build and grow those skills. Especially the the cost of the MBA. Right. It's it just, you know, yep. soared. <laughs> And it's, it's far exceeded ex, uh, inflation, certainly for as long as I've been doing this. Yeah. And people, people want to, people want to be making money very quickly. Right. You can see it in the second year that folks are like, well, I have a job lined up in 10 months, but you know, I could be, I could be making some money now to help to offset some of these costs. So what does that look like? And I'll tell you at Michigan with a strong focus on experiential learning, I would say Michigan has a lot of, you know, Michigan Ross has got a lot of opportunities for students to take on very experiential, um, you know, opportunities. And I presume that that has started to move more towards some paid opportunities that students are doing, you know, complementary to their MBA experience. All right, let's, let's move you more into the talent acquisition um, role, okay? When you're hiring for management positions at Vail, what are you looking for? You, you've touched on it a little bit, but I want to, I want to go back to it if you don't mind. 
Yeah. And so, you know, in, in my role at Vail, you know, I, I work on more the talent acquisition strategy or the things that make talent acquisition go. And so when I'm doing the international recruiting, it's actually mostly students. Uh, so it's more similar than it is different to the work that I do at Ross. Having said that, I see some similarities, especially as you look for executives, uh, you know, as we look for executives at Vail, but as I talk to friends in other industry spaces, this notion that somebody needs to be able to come in and be resilient and adaptable, right? Because everybody can say, okay, I've developed a set of hard skills and I can run these reports and do these spreadsheets and you know manage these technical skills. But I think businesses are changing so fast, right? So fast. Vail acquired a ton of resorts in the last 10 or 15 years. I mean, they went from a handful of resorts to 40 plus resorts, right? Wow. And so it's not just the tech industry where you see this evolution of what the new business looks like. It's, uh, you know, other industries that maybe didn't have as much change in the past that could be accelerating that change. And a lot of businesses are looking for you to be adaptable to that change. And I think change is uncomfortable and a little scary for folks. Yeah. I will say, I think that the MBA is a great playground, if you will, for change, right? For you to be trying new things and adapting and, and flexing those skills such that you can demonstrate them to employers, because I think that they're really, you know, people really need to be adaptable. That's probably what's going to differentiate this tech, all these folks that got laid off, right? right. A lot of them have a technical skill set. Probably some are a little better than others, but let's say most of them are more similar than they are different. What's going to differentiate them, right? And it might be their relationships or could be their ability to demonstrate that they can pivot and adapt with change. That's a good one. My husband was an actuary for many years and he really said that said, many of the actuaries, they were very detail oriented, very spreadsheet oriented, but they couldn't see the big picture. Got it. And the what for him, what distinguished the really valuable from the okay was that ability to zoom out and zoom in. Right. Right. Another, not exactly a resilience and adaptability, but another, I think, very critical quality for people coming from highly technical backgrounds. Got it. You got it. All right. Now you were talking about pivoting and obviously, you know, uh, the MBA is, is famous for allowing people to pivot. But my question for you is, again, wearing your more talent acquisition hat and knowing so much as you do about the MBA experience, how can career changers enhance their chances of making the pivot they hope to make even before they're accepted to B-School? And let's say, mm -hmm. I'm not going to apply now. I'm going to apply next fall. I'm in a technical role. Maybe I'm in, I don't know, computer programming or some technical role. And I know I want to change and I want to go into general management brand management, and I wanted to apply to an MBA program in the fall, what steps can I take now that will help me make that change? Well, you, you brought an important point that, you know, candidates now, where are we? We're in November, right? So candidates might be applying now for next September. And you mentioned that maybe they have some interest in general management or brand management or whatever mm -hmm. the case is. So there's an inkling, right, that they have developed, whether it's through their own professional experience or otherwise from kind of hearing more about these other professions, about what that future could look like. So they're starting to visualize themselves in that future. They're starting to put together, you know, a lot of schools ask, what are your career goals, right, or some version of a career goal essay. So they're already thinking about that right now. You know, I think there's so many, again, so many more ways to learn about what that future could look like. You know, I know that Ross, over the course of the last month, just did a bunch of webinars, a full hour 
on why Ross for healthcare, why Ross for marketing, why Ross for you know data and analytics, all these things. So not only are you going to learn how that school is going to help prepare you to get into that field, you're going to hear directly from people about what they did over their internships and why they chose the companies they did. You know, that's one small piece of a lot of this knowledge that's out there about what do these career paths really look like and what are the experience and skills that they might be looking for? So if you're going to interview for an internship and Linda, let's see, we're in November now, if you apply next fall, you're literally only 12, 13, 14 months from doing your internship interview. I think people right. don't realize that that starts in maybe December or January of your first year. So you are a year away of needing to demonstrate a set of skills to a future employer. So I think if you have some clarity around those skills and some space within your current job, this is the time to seek out how am I going to take on a stretch project or experience that's going to allow me to maybe put that resume bullet on my resume or at, at a minimum, you know, bring that into an interview about tell me about a time when you've done something and now you have more direct applicable experience to be able to share. But I think people, if you've been in your job, especially for a year or two and you've built the relationships and they, you know, they know you're going to business school if they're invested in your success and you say, might I try this project? You know, you don't know if you don't ask, but I think you right. need to know what you're asking for uh, to try to stretch and build those skills. And why, right? The worst thing is they say no, and then you still can't do it. I mean, it, <laughs> yeah. that's about it. What's a common misconception out there about the hiring process and talent acquisition? I asked you about the admissions process. Now let's let's talk about talent acquisition process. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to, and I'm going to build from the, the first year of that MBA experience, because I think to start with for prospective MBA applicants, I don't think that they realize just how early the recruiting process starts. So I don't know if that's necessarily a misconception, but just something that maybe there's not as much awareness on. So just to give some context, a lot of schools over the course of the summer do a substantial amount such that when you hit the ground on day one of school, you probably have already had a lot of prep and focus on what your career path is intended to be. And so I do think people think, well, the MBA is two full years for me to explore. Sure. Do people go on one path on an internship and then change for their full-time job? Maybe. But I think it surprises people how fast that process happens. But then once you get into kind of the networking period, you know, which could be happening over a course of several months and even into the interviews, the misconceptions that I see around, you know, the actual job process or experience, you know, I think it's that people feel again, that you have to have like a certain, I'm interviewing with this company and I know this company values this. So I'm going to overplay my hand on my data and analytics skills. I'm going to make sure that every example I tell them is about data and analytics skills, but especially with consulting, they're looking for client ready candidates. So if you are only telling them about your data and analytics skills and not about your ability to build a team or relationships or develop a relationship with a client, they're not going to pick you, right? And so I think a misconception is just, uh, you know, honing in on what they believe to be a particular skill. And I, they do value that skill, but they value well-roundedness too. And so you have to make sure that you're you're pulling in those stories that show the other parts of who you are. And I will say this too, Linda, and this is the admissions process as well. If you went to engineering school and you are an engineer or, were, or have been in a technical role, you must 
in the admissions process for admissions or in the networking and interview process for recruiting, you must demonstrate something other than your engineering skills and technical background. Right. Right? It's almost positive that's where you were going. Yeah, you must. Yeah. You have to show communications, right? You got it. Right. Right. The ability for small talk. And, and Linda, I mean, you know, you and I see this. This is different for internationals, too. Right. It is really culturally different when when international candidates from different parts of the world come and they realize that the first five minutes of the conversation might be about the Michigan football game. <laughs> right. Or like, you know, about something, something that's happening in the world or, uh, you know, a variety of things that have nothing to do with the job. Right. Just have to do with building that relationship. And that takes practice. But the schools recognize how different that can be. Again, it's hard for Americans too, but in particular, there are nuances for international candidates. Right. Uh, so the schools work very closely just to try to make sure that those cultural nuances translate and the candidates are ready. Yes, absolutely. I think it also ties back to what my husband was kind of saying about the big picture and the small picture about communications. All right. Um, I also wanted to touch on something that that you and I talked about before we turned the recording on, and that is the withdrawal of Harvard, Yale, and Berkeley Law from the U.S. News Rankings. Do you think that's going to spill into business school? Just curious. You know, I, I do. I do. Okay. And I'll tell you, you know, some of the other trends that we saw that maybe took business school a little bit longer to catch on to, but you would see, for example, in graduate school admissions outside of, well, outside of business and law and medicine, but you saw test waivers happening earlier than the yeah. MBA programs were bringing those forward, right? And it was uh, for equity reasons, a variety of reasons, and they did it across campus. And I think there's something to be said. If an action is taking place on your campus, it it raises the awareness of the deans around you, right? So you can bet that the deans of Harvard and Yale and Berkeley Law Schools talk to the deans of the business schools there. They do, right? They get together right. from time to time. It's just the nature of how deans connect and interact and engage. And I am confident that the conversation will continue to evolve. Now, when the MBA programs or, you know, business schools decide to pull out, I think is an interesting point. Um, you know, if you're a Yale or a Harvard, uh, you know, that's a little bit different than the school that's ranked number 27 deciding to do the same thing first, right? So I, I, the domino effect when it starts at the top can sometimes move a little bit faster. So I'll be in, intrigued to see what happens here in the coming yeah. weeks. I think the same question could be asked about uh, test waivers. You know, that's been yep. um, so far the the top top are still requiring it, but it's I think it's getting tougher for them to require it because we have more and more candidates saying, "I don't want to take a test. I'm only applying to to, to places I don't that don't require it." You know, and we when we started our test waiver, Linda, and and you're right, the top schools didn't do it, and so it was a lot of discussion about what does this mean? How do we maintain quality? What does it look like? What measures are we looking at for success? But we we also did it at the point at which people were saying, I cannot get to a test center to be able to take the test, right. or if I can take it at home, I live in a multi generational home, I live in an environment that's not great for me to have four dedicated hours of me to be able to take this test and to perform my best. And so when we heard that, uh, we made adjustments based on the candidate situation. And I'll be honest, we made those adjustments thinking, well, we're going to try this right now, right? Mm. Situational in the moment. Let's see how things go. Yeah. But as you know, you gather data along the way, right? And we now have data that says, People that have the test waiver did well in the classroom. People that have the test waiver, you know, didn't disproportionately right. say right against some of these measures. People that have the test waiver, right, are still getting good job outcomes. Now at Michigan Ross, you know, it's still only like 80% have the test, 20% do not. 
So there are a number of candidates who choose to take the test as an added demonstration of their candidacy or maybe build from a deficiency that they feel that they have. So it is still the case that a lot of people are taking tests. It's probably because a lot of schools still require the test too, right? So they're applying to schools that where they need that. But even as we move into this, you know, I don't even know if it's post-COVID environment or whatever world we're hope in so. right now. Hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. I, I'm feeling good about it as well. But the point is the Michigan Ross has continued their test waiver. Again, we'll see if that continues, but we're in a new environment. And I think the fact that we saw some demonstrated success from it and that it was a candidate-friendly kind of move to continue it too, as people continue to be really overwhelmed with work and things like that. Um, you know, there are other measures that we can take a look at to be able to determine both candidacy as well as scholarship. All right, great. Now, let's say I love skiing and I think Colorado is absolutely magnificent and gorgeous, which by the way, I do. I don't, I don't ski though. <laughs> How can I get a job at Vail Resorts? Oh, that's a good question. And there are so many jobs. Linda, this is like one of those environments where I get a chance to work with people who run the mountains, right? Like they run lift operations or they running the operations for the, you know, all these different things or this, the tickets or the rental business or like all these things. It's, it's fascinating to me just because there's such amazing diversity of talent and the work that we are all doing collectively to make this a great place. And so you know, Vail, one of the things that drew me there was that we're looking to create an experience of a lifetime for our customers, but we're also looking to create an experience of a lifetime for our employees, right? So mm -hmm. like for the guests, as well as for the employees. And so for me, what I see is really a drive and a passion for the people around me, whether it's doing great work for the guests or whether it is how do we support our employees? You can imagine during a ski season, right? Yeah. How many shifts you're doing and what's going on and all the things that are happening, how do we support their growth and success? So as I think about like, if you're looking to work for Vail and whatever role it is, and what does that success look like? It does come back to this drive to either and or both, right? To bring a, an, an experience of a lifetime for our guests or an experience of a lifetime for our employees. And if that motivates you, I think that that, that passion comes through and you can figure out the opportunities within that will ultimately lead us all to, towards similar objectives. That was great. Anything you would have liked me to ask you? Oh my gosh, Linda. You know, I, um, I don't want people to be worried that the MBA is going, you know, away. And, and I, and I say that meaning like people have to make their own assumptions and things about that, but I look at it as, I mean, it's such a transformational experience, this experience of a lifetime for our employees and guests. That's what the MBA is too, right? An experience of a lifetime, for students. And so I know that we hit on that theme of like, you know, is the MBA still valuable or what this looks like? The MBA is what you make it, you know? And I think that when you go into that experience, if you're mindful of what you want to get out of that experience and, and, and have a focus, frankly, the people who are unfocused don't do it very well. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. I think if you're focused and you know what to get out of it, it can be life-changing, truly transformational. And so I would say the question that I, I wish you would have asked is just like, what else do these candidates need to know about this great experience? And I think really not going beyond the classes, going beyond, you know, what are the experiences that people are having? Going to a wedding in India with 50 of your classmates because one of your classmates is getting married. Wow. 
right? Like how often have you done that in your professional life, right? Like there's just going to be experiences that come up that you really can't replicate outside of this very intensive focus environment with so many great people around you. So I hope you consider applying and I hope you consider applying to Michigan Ross, go blue. <laughs> All right, great. You know, one thing I, I didn't say when we were discussing uh, the Poets and Quants article, it was written by John Byrne. Yeah. And one of the thoughts that occurred to me is over the last 25 years, I've read so many articles on different publications, probably including his, yeah. that predicted the demise of the MBA. Yeah. So it's been predicted for the last 25 years, which he admits in the article. Right. But um, anyways, I do appreciate your insights and uh, the and the point that it is a transformational experience. I do think that any person applying to the MBA has to look at do, do a, has to do a cost benefit analysis, and they have to assess whether for them it makes sense financially as well as personally. You know, I think the transformational experience is definitely part of it, and it's something that should be considered, but the cost is there and, and they have to do both. They have to do both. Well, and I think with like the online part-time MBA programs and stuff, Michigan's got a really great one, right? Where you can continue working and still develop a really great skills. We take a lot of basically lessons learned from the full-time program in terms of building cohort and creating these experiences. And we adapt them for this other audience, but to your point, there are different flavors of these programs. And while yeah. I'm talking about the residential version, because that's the one I attended as well as the one I worked at admissions with, I, I'm with you on the cost benefit analysis and even the the format, right, of the program that, that suits you best. Right. All right. Well, Diana, I want to thank you so much for joining me. This has been absolutely delightful. And we're going to include links in the show notes at exhibit.com slash 501 to related articles and interviews. They're all going to be linked to from exhibit.com slash 501. Quick reminder, don't miss the MBA ROI calculator. Find out how much your MBA investment could benefit you financially. That's exactly what we were just talking about. Take the quiz at exhibit.com slash MBA ROI calc, MBA ROI C-A-L-C. Listener, thank you too for joining Diana Economy and me for our 501st episode. If you find the show worthwhile, please subscribe. Make sure you don't miss any future shows, be they with admissions deans, former admissions deans, talent acquisition professionals, MBA professors, current students, test prep bros, or alumni doing great things. You'll find subscribe links at accepted.com slash 501. This is Linda Abraham. I want to thank you again for coming to Admissions Straight Talk, produced by Accepted. I'm your host, and I'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>